morning we read together in Holy Scripture from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is quite a well-known passage. Isaiah is being called and commissioned as a prophet and sent by God to Israel to proclaim the word of the Lord to a largely unbelieving nation and to encourage him in that calling. He has shown a vision of God in his holiness in the temple. This is the word of God, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a tile tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. So far we read in the Holy Word of God this morning. In light of that teaching and others in Holy Scripture, let us consider the Heidelberg Catechism. In Lord's Day 8, page 6 in the back of the Psalter, Lord's Day 8, the previous question and answer gave us the content of the Apostles' Creed, the articles of the Apostles' Creed, which is what we believe as Christians Now, question 24 asks, how are these articles divided? Answer, into three parts. The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second, of God the Son and our redemption. The third, of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. 
Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Because God hath so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, repeating things in the language of the Old Testament is done for emphasis. There are no exclamation points in the Hebrew language. The way to make a point louder, as it were, is to say it more than once. So if the bigger room of the tabernacle is the holy place, the inner chamber where the Ark of the Covenant is kept is the holy of holies. That seems to be what the seraphim are doing here in Isaiah's vision of God. God is not only holy one time. God is not even holy, holy two times. God is the holiest of all beings, and therefore he is given a repetition of three. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That explanation of the angel's cry and why they say holy three times fits well with the character and purpose of this vision to Isaiah. Isaiah must be prepared to cry against the unholiness of a people who have unclean lips. And how can he do that if he himself is also a man of unclean lips? While the vision of God and all of his holy majesty is to remind him that he is not speaking in behalf of himself, but he is speaking in behalf of this holy God, this thrice holy God who has called him and sent him to Israel. But in the ancient church, there was a different understanding of the holy, holy, holy of the seraphim. The early Christians saw in that cry of the seraphim, holy, 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 a proof that God is a triune God. God is one, they said, yet he is Three times holy, according to Isaiah 6, verse 3. As the well-known hymn puts it, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That might seem like those are two contradictory interpretations. One says it's for emphasis. Another one says that it's for uh, a proof of the Trinity. But I don't think that they are contradictory interpretations. In fact, I think they both fit together quite well. There are better proof texts in the Bible for the doctrine of the Trinity than Isaiah 6 verse 3. For example, in Matthew 3, the baptism of Christ, you have the Father and you have Jesus Christ, the Son, and you have the Spirit descending in the form of a dove. And when Jesus sends Uh, his disciples into all nations. He says to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's better proof text for the doctrine of the Trinity than Isaiah 6, verse 3. But if you understand the truth of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you understand what it is that makes Him so wonderfully, beautifully, emphatically, three times even, a holy God. 
So I call our attention this morning to the instruction of Lord's Day 8 in light of Isaiah 6. And the theme of the sermon this morning is the thrice holy God. First, we will see who this God is as the one being who is also three persons. Secondly, how this truth of who God is teaches us that he is a holy God. And then finally, we'll end with the call, the call that we must all hear which is to behold this God, to behold him, to be amazed by him, and to worship him. The thrice holy God, first who he is, secondly his holiness, and then finally, behold your God. The first point is, who is God? Who is God? That's a deep question. It shouldn't be surprising to us that that's a deep question. If I ask any of you who you are, you're probably going to answer differently depending on the situation. You might tell me who you are by giving me your name and your family name and telling me about your brothers and sisters and your parents and where you came from. Or you might tell me who you are by giving me your title and your job description and what you do every day at work or in the home. You might talk about any number of things depending on where you are in life currently, and what your relationship is to me. The question, who are you, is a deep question, an important question. And if that's true of all of us as human creatures, it's all the more true of God. Who is God? We know that in God there is almighty wisdom and almighty power that created all things that we see out of nothing. We know that in God there is redeeming grace and there is mercy because we come to this God from the viewpoint of faith. That's what we saw in Lord's Day 7. We are believers and we come to this God from the conviction that not only to others but to me also the mercy of God is given. But who is He? Who is He? Well, consider how that question was answered for Isaiah in his vision of God in the temple. First of all, it was revealed to Isaiah that this God has a name. He has a name. The powerful being who gave shape to the universe is not an impersonal and mystical force. The Buddhists and mystics and New Age proponents speak of a God or a divine energy who is impersonal, who is basically one with nature, or who is nature itself. All creatures flow in and out of this divine energy that has no face, that has no name, that has no identity, no person. But that's not the God Isaiah encountered in his vision of God in the throne room. The angels were crying out a name, a distinct name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, that is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Not its glory, but His glory. God is a personal God. He is a God who can be known, who can be called upon, who can be worshipped and believed in. Secondly, the God that Isaiah encountered in his vision is a God who transcends, Transcends all things, all creatures with His dreadful holiness and otherness. 
He is high and lifted up so that his kingly robes fill the whole temple. The temple was a pretty large room. And yet the robes, the kingly robes that God was wearing filled the whole temple. We think of angels as creatures from another world who reflect this pure and glorious light. But even the angels appear small and humble before the radiant majesty of God. They have wings, but their wings are not so much for flying as for covering their faces and covering their feet in the presence of this holy God. He's transcendent. He's above. Third, The God whom Isaiah encountered in his vision is a God who has a title. I saw the Lord, he says. I saw the Lord. There's no need to clarify which Lord he's talking about. Because there's only one Lord. The Lord who sits on a throne that fills all creation with the dread of His sovereignty and of His power. All the angels, the hosts of that Heavenly world that we cannot see are always going up into heaven and down on that ladder that Jacob saw in his vision. And why are they going up and down between heaven and earth? It is to fulfill the will of this sovereign God, this Lord of heaven and earth. The whole earth is full of His glory. And finally, the God whom Isaiah saw in his vision was one God. One God. We take that for granted. But in the days of Isaiah, the world was overrun with polytheism. Polytheism, which is the worship of many gods. The nations around Judah in Canaan and surrounding Canaan had endless gods in their pantheons. Endless gods that represented every aspect of creation. There was a God of the sun, and there was a God of the moon. Children, when the pagans looked up at the sun, they did not see a creature that God had created. They saw a God that must be worshipped and bowed down to and praised and trusted in. There was a God of love. There was a God of war. And all these gods representing the vast array of human emotions and the vast array of creatures also worked their way into the lives and imaginations of God's own people in Jerusalem. Which is why Isaiah says, I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Why were their lips unclean? Because they had made vows and prayers to these other gods. But in stark contrast to the imaginations of the hearts of men, which are idol factories, the true God is one God. Listen to what God says of Himself later on in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of His might, for that He is strong in power, and not one faileth. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto Him? He's one God. That God is one is essential in our answer to the question, who is God? Who is He? 
I don't know if we fully appreciate just how ugly, how sad, how terrifying these polytheistic religions of many gods really are. Unless you have lived for a time in paganism or experienced that on an ex- from a, in your own experience, I don't know if we fully appreciate it. Had the opportunity to go to Singapore once and we visited the Hindu temple there. And when you walk into the Hindu temple, you go through this entryway, this arch, and above you, hundreds of faces, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of faces of all different colors, some men, some women, some animals, some part human, part animal, some smiling, some frowning, some laughing, some yelling. All these faces of all these gods. People walk into that temple to worship these gods. This is reality to them. This is what explains why I'm here and why the world is the way it is because of all these gods with all of these emotions and all of these demands. But here's the thing about those gods. (laughs) They're just like the human beings who serve them. They're just projections of what's in the human heart and in the human mind. Which is why those gods are all petty and jealous. Full of revenge. Full of gossip. Full of lust. Full of favoritism. Always at war. Read some mythology. Read about the Greek gods. You learn a lot. But what you learn about is human psychology. What you learn about is what's in the human heart and the human mind. You don't learn anything about God. You don't learn anything about divinity. You learn about man. That's because the gods of those religions are simply a reflection of the human hearts that invented them. And they act then like a screen. A screen to prevent these people from truly knowing the one God who created them. The glory of the one true God is that He's above all of that, beloved. Unlike the gods who are created by human hands, the one true God is the one who with His almighty hand created men. Unlike the gods who are under the control of human priests, the one true God is sovereign and free. He does what He will in the army of heaven and none can stay His hand or say, why did you do this or why did you do that? Unlike the gods who need men to speak for them, the one true God speaks for Himself with His own Word, by His Spirit. He is His own. He does what He wants. Nobody controls Him. Nobody tells Him what to do. The only way to know God, the beloved, is to know that He is God alone. Well, there's more to God than His oneness. Within that one only divine essence that we've been speaking of, that the Heidelberg Catechism speaks of in question 25, within that one only divine essence, there are three distinct persons, answer 25 says. There is a Father. A Father. The Father is a person, a distinct person with an identity of His own. A person who begets, who creates, 
who originates things, persons, and beings other than himself. The Belgic Confession calls the Father, in Article 11, the cause, origin, and beginning of all things, visible and invisible. Then there is the Son, within this one only divine essence that is God. There is the Father and there is the Son. Two persons. The Son is the person who is begotten of His Father. And as the begotten of His Father goes into the world and redeems God's people, the Belgic Confession calls Him the Word, wisdom, and image of the Father. You've heard the name Arius before. That ancient heretic. Well, Arius said that the Son was created. Arius said that there was a time when the Son was not. There was a time when there was only the Father all alone without His Son. That's a lie. The truth is that the Son is an eternal Son. An eternal Son who is always dwelling in the bosom of His Father. Always has been and always will be the same yesterday and today and forever. And then there is the Spirit. Not one person, not two persons, but three persons. The Belgic Confession calls the Spirit the eternal power and might who proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is Spirit, that is, breath. And as holy breath, He is breathed into the Father, as it were, just like the air, the oxygen around you, goes into your expanding lungs. So the Spirit is breathed in by the Father as holy breath. And then the Father exhales the Spirit and the Spirit is inhaled by the Spirit and He fills, is inhaled rather by the Son and He fills the Son and then the Son exhales Him to be inhaled by the Father and always He is proceeding back and forth between the Father and the Son, possessing and filling them both with His own personal life and presence. It's mysterious. But this is the language reflecting intimacy and communication and love. The Spirit is that personal bond who draws the Father to the Son so that the Father is in the Son and with the Son and draws the Son to the Father so that the Son is in the Father and with the Father and both Father and Son together are in and with the Spirit. Three persons who are revealed together in Scripture as the one only true and eternal God. There is no rank and there is no file. We sometimes talk about the first person and the second person and the third person of the Trinity, but that's only a matter of convenience. The Son is not the subordinate of the Father in any sense, functionally or otherwise. The Spirit is not the subordinate to the Son or the Father in any sense. Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal co-eternal there was never a time when the father was without his son or spirit co-eternal and co-majestic if isaiah could have seen god as he truly is which he did not see god as he truly is for he saw god in a vision you cannot see god as he truly is but if we could say that isaiah could have seen god as he truly was What he would have seen is Father, Son, and Spirit together sitting on that one throne. Father, Son, and Spirit together wrapped around in that one kingly sovereign robe. Father, Son, and Spirit 
together flanked by those seraphim who cried out, Holy, holy, holy is this one Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. God is three. And that also is essential to knowing the answer to the question, who is God? In fact, it is the threeness of God that really gets us nearer to the mark of that question, who? Who is God? Not what, but who? Because if you're asking who someone is, you're asking about their person. What is your person? Your person is your individuality. Your person is the part of you that says, I. Your person is the part of you that stands at the center of all of your experiences. Your body changes. Even your soul, from a, in a sense, changes as you grow and develop from the time when you are a child to the time when you breathe your last breath. But always, there is your person that is at the center of your being. The part of you that says, I. And that's the part that answers if somebody asks, who are you? Who are you? I am this. I am that. Well, God has three of those. He has three of those. He has one being, one power, one glory, one love, one unchanging character. But in God, there are three who say, I, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And that's the answer to the question, who? Who is God? He is the Father. He is the Son. He is the Spirit. Understand, beloved, that this makes your God radically different from the God of Islam. Understand that this makes your God radically different so that there is a great gulf fixed in between. Radically different from the God who is promoted in the Watchtower magazine of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It makes Him radically different from the gods of the so-called monotheistic religions. You do not know God. You do not know who He is. If you only say God is one. God is one. But He is three persons within that one being. And only that God is God. Only that God is the God who creates with a fatherly interest and care for His creation. Only that God is the God who gives Himself with the love of a son to redeem His brothers. Only that God is the God who renews and resurrects and gives life with the mysterious power of the Spirit. God is the triune God. If you do not know that God, you do not know God. Period. Why, is, why that is the case will be made clear when we consider the holiness of the triune God. We say that this God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. What do we mean when we say that? What did those angels mean? What did Isaiah understand by that? What does it mean that God is holy? Well, on the one hand, and this is maybe what we naturally gravitate to when we hear that word holiness, holiness is one of the perfections of God's character. It's one of His attributes. 
that God is holy explains on the one hand why He is a consuming fire, an inferno that reacts in wrath against all that is sinful. When there is sin and evil, the character of God reacts against it. He burns up the evildoer and everything that the evildoer's fingers have touched and contaminated. He's going to do that to the whole world in the end. Everything that you see, this whole creation, is going to be melted with a fervent heat to be cleansed, to be purified by the holiness of God. You can understand why Isaiah reacts the way he does when he sees this God and when he hears the angels cry. He's not just embarrassed when he says these words. He's not just ashamed. He's terrified because he knows the sinful things that he has thought, the sinful desires that he has had, the sinful things his hands have done. Woe is me, he says. Woe is me. I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips. This was Isaiah, a godly man if there ever was one. I am undone. Woe is me, he says. I've seen the king. Isaiah knows that a holy God is a God who is of purer eyes than to behold evil. As Habakkuk says. To make the same point in a positive way, we could say that God is holy and that He has a holy character explains why he delights in all that is good and all that is pure and all that is beautiful. A person who is holy is not only somebody who refrains from certain activities. A person who is holy is not only somebody who does and says the right things externally speaking. A person who is holy does and says the right things because his whole being, everything that he is, is on fire for what is good. And for what is right and for what is beautiful, he's consecrated to it, dedicated to it, devoted with the entirety of everything that he is toward the good. He's clean, clean on the inside and on the outside, both his hands and his lips and his soul. That's God. He hates the evil. He hates everything that is contrary to who and what he is. And he loves the good and he seeks it and he performs it. And he elevates it. And he's consistent through and through in his perfect delight and zeal for what is good and right and true. His character is holy. This is one of his attributes. But if we only think of holiness as a character trait, we might, we might get the wrong idea. That God is holy is not merely a reflection of his character. And especially when the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They're not only speaking of His character. What the holiness of God is really about is this otherness of God. This this separation of God from all things. All created things. He's other. He's Separate. He is an entirely different being. He's his own. What word do you use? Thing? He's not a thing. He's his own being, his own essence. Just look at those seraphim in order to make clear 
what I'm saying here. Look at those seraphim. By every standard, by every measure of moral purity, we would say that those seraphim are holy. They have a holy character. There is no sin in those beautiful angels who fly before the face of God. There is hatred of sin. There is a delight in what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. There is consecration toward God, purity of thought, a desire for His Word. Through and through, these seraphim are holy, consecrated, burning with a zeal for the living God so that all they do all day, every day, and all night is to cry out the praises of this God. But what happens when even these holy angels who have that holy character stand in the presence of God? What do they do? (laughs) They cover their faces. They cover their feet. They say, holy, holy, holy. And they say, holy, holy, holy. Because there's no way to be more emphatic He's the Holy One. He's the Holy One. Not us. Not us. Not us. He's the Holy One. That's what they're saying. Why? Because even angels, even the seraphim, for all of their moral perfection, are just creatures. They're just creatures. They were brought into this world by the omnipotent power of God, just like you were and just like I was. They live and inhabit time and space. They are part of the something that God called out of the nothing. But God is different. God. He has always been there. He has always been there. Do you think about that sometimes? It ought to make the hair stand up. On our skin. He's always been. How can that be? How can He have always been there? How can He at this moment be in all places filling the whole universe with its stars and its galaxies and its planets and yet also be fully present with us in this room with the wholeness and fullness of His being? How can that be? How can He be omnipresent how can he be omnipotent omnowing the answer can only be because he is god he's other he's the fountainhead of his own being he's the source of all that is good and true what else can you say you can't define him because that would imply limitations he's god he's holy Now, take that idea of the otherness of God and apply it to the answer that we gave in the first point concerning who is God. God is holy other. Holy other. He's holy other than all the ideas, all the conceptions, all the imaginations that men have of God and of God's. Some men imagine to themselves that God is one and only one. There are all kinds of people in the world today, billions of people in the world today who say God is one and only one. 
There is one God. And what do they end up with in their imagination of this God? They end up with a God who is all alone. And you have no idea what kind of aloneness we're talking about here. All alone for eternity in darkness. The God they end up with is a God who knows nothing of friendship, cannot know anything of friendship. Not really, because he has no one who can be conceived of as his equal. They end up with a God who is self-absorbed, a God who is self-obsessed. That's Allah for you. That's Allah. That's the God of Islam. And how does that solitary, eternally lonely, self-absorbed, self-obsessed God relate to His people, even at His best? How? He crushes them. He crushes them. He makes them slaves. And slaves of the vilest sort. The entire religion of Islam is centered around submission. Submit. 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 That's what the word Islam itself means. Submit. That's Muhammad's message. That's Muhammad's God. And it shows. Other men imagine to themselves that God is many. And what do they end up with? They end up with a horde. A horde of petty gods. All of those faces looking down on you. Always fighting. Always bickering. Always trying to get the best of one another. Always trying to one-up each other. Always trying to take everything they can out of their human servants. Always full of lust. That's heathenism. That's polytheism for you. Hinduism, Buddhism, pagan religions. And how does this pantheon of bloodthirsty demons, because that's what they are, demons relate to the people who serve them? They're never satisfied. Never. They always want more. More, more, more. And even if you give those gods everything that they want, everything that they ask for, at the end of your life, they're still going to throw you into hell. They have nothing for the people who serve them. Nothing. God isn't like that, beloved. He's other. He's other. He is three. Yes, there is multiplicity in Him. A multiplicity of persons. But He's not at war within Himself like those polytheistic gods. He's not this seething cauldron of passions and emotions like the gods of the heathen, but there's a unity of vision. There's a unity of purpose. There's a perfect cooperation of Father, Son, and Spirit. So much so that everything that these three persons do, they do together and they do as one being. The Father creates, but He creates by the Son and in the Spirit. The Son redeems, but He redeems as the begotten of the Father and the anointed one of the Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies, but He sanctifies as the one who is sent by the Father through the Son. So close are these three persons that all that they do, they do as the one only God. And yes, He is one, but He's not alone. He's not alone. He's not this solitary God who exists in the endless monotony of eternity all by Himself. But there's fellowship. There's always fellowship. 
fellowship of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God is a family. He's a Father who delights in and dedicates Himself to His Son and His Spirit. He's a Son who delights in and dedicates Himself to His Father and His Spirit. He's a Spirit who delights in and dedicates Himself to His Father and His Son. Three persons in perfect, beautiful harmony and fellowship for all eternity. That's God. And it shows in the way that He relates to His people, doesn't it? Yes, He calls us to submission. But it's not a degrading submission. It's the submission of children to their father. It's the submission of a bride to her husband. And I know sinful human beings twist and distort sometimes those family relationships and they turn it into something ugly. But the relationship of children to their father and a bride to her husband is supposed to be beautiful. It was designed that way to be beautiful. The kind of relationship that makes you excited to serve the other. A beautiful submission, a yielding of yourself to God with the assurance that you are loved and valued by Him. That's the kind of submission He calls us to. And more than just submission, He calls us and He lets He calls us friends. And He lets us call Him friend. The eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ becomes my God and my Father on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt, but He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. The eternal Son who is begotten before all worlds becomes my elder brother and my King. The eternal Spirit who dwells in the Father and in the Son comes to dwell within me, makes me His home, lives within me as His temple. Far from degrading us, the triune God takes us who have degraded ourselves in our sin and unbelief, and then He lifts us up to the heights of joy and fellowship with Himself. That, beloved, that is the holiness of God. There is no other God like that. There are all kinds of cheap knockoffs. There are all kinds of ugly distortions, idols which are really just men who masquerade as God. But the true God is holy. He's other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The calling then is simple. Behold your God. Behold your God. Now there's something terrifying about that. Something that ought to fill us with a certain dread. Even Isaiah, somewhere in our confessions, it talks about those who are the holiest of men. The holiest of men. No doubt Isaiah was one of those. A man who did what was right. A man who spoke the word of God against terrible opposition. We don't read anything negative about Isaiah other than that he spoke the word of God to a sinful people. And yet even Isaiah cries out in a panic when he sees the vision of the thrice holy God. Woe is me, for I am undone. For I, I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have beheld the King. 
And if that's true of Isaiah, how much more isn't it true of you and me? When you think about the things that occupy your attention day after day after day, maybe even right now, when we're sitting right here in the sanctuary of God's presence, what's running through our minds? What's occupying our attention? All kinds of petty matters. Petty matters that have to do with human life. And those petty matters become great big mountains in our minds and in our hearts. And then God is suddenly before us, shining into our lives with all of His majesty. And what are all of those concerns? They're nothing. Nothing. Why have we not been crying out day after day, night after night, along with the holy seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. What else could possibly be important? That we are a people of unclean lips. There's something that ought to fill us with dread at the prospect of beholding this God. But look at what God then does in the vision. He looks at that trembling Isaiah who is prostrate on his face and he takes pity on him, shows him mercy. Bible says he remembers he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He sends his angel to touch Isaiah's lips with a coal from the blood-soaked altar of burnt offering. No doubt that was very painful. A hot living coal pressed against your lips. And then he says, "Lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged." His iniquity was taken away. There was forgiveness. Forgiveness how? Forgiveness through the altar where the lamb was shed. Forgiveness from his iniquities. And what did that do to Isaiah? What did that do to him? It made it possible for Isaiah to live his whole life before the face of his God and to go out amongst a people of unclean lips and to proclaim unto them the word of the Lord day in and day out, even though they rejected it, even though they turned their backs on it, even though in the end they took him and they killed him in the streets. Because the Holy God showed that mercy to him, cleansed away his sins, and empowered him with his spirit. When the fear of God takes hold of us, beloved, we have to remember who our God is. We have to remember who He is to us. Oh yes! He is great! He is transcendent! He's terrifying to behold! But that same God comes down to us in the form of Jesus Christ to show us mercy, to walk with us as a brother with His brothers and sisters, to forgive our sins, That's the holiness of God. What God is like that? No God is like that. But our God is. Behold Him. Know Him. Delight in Him. Worship Him. Know the love that He has for you, beloved. Know the greatness of that love. And that, of course, 
is what we're going to do together as a congregation. This is Lord's Day 8. And what is Lord's Day 8? Well, it's the Lord's Day that gives us the breakdown of the structure of the Apostles' Creed. And now we're going to march week after week through the articles of the Apostles' Creed and learn the doctrines of the Christian faith. And what are we going to be doing as we do that? We're going to be beholding our God. Behold Him. Behold Him, beloved, not with a distant, apathetic frame of mind, but behold Him as the God that He is, the Holy God and your Redeemer through Jesus Christ. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we have heard of who Thou art. We have barely scratched the surface. For Thou art far greater than our minds can fully conceive. And yet we pray, O Father, give us a sense of the dread of Thy majesty, that we may fear Thee. But give us faith, too, O Father, that we fear Thee not as a judge who is going to cast us away or to judge us, but that we may fear Thee as children who fear their Father. And because we have such a great Father, such a mighty, a holy, and other Father, may our fear and our faith be great as we live before thy face, beholding thee, our God. Bless us as we work through article by article the Apostles' Creed that lays out the doctrine that we so love and cherish. And let that doctrine that we encounter strengthen us, encourage us, and empower us like Isaiah to say, Here am I, Lord, send me that we may live our lives before thy face. Hear our prayer, not because we are worthy, but because that coal from the altar hath touched our lips and our iniquities have been purged through the blood of Christ the Lamb. In his name we pray.